Hello, welcome to Scuttlebutt episode 48. I am Nick and I'm in the room with Nancy right now. Hi everyone. And today we're featuring uh, Dr. Michael Hunziker talking about the Straits of Taiwan with Vic and William. But before we get to that, uh, Nancy, you've got an update from our long road friends, uh, Sergeant Major Lee Hugh and Rocky Kinzer. I sure do. They are current, as we record this, they are walking through Indiana. And uh, so I, I, uh, messaged last night with Sergeant Major LeHue and he had a he had a message for all of you Scuttlebutt listeners. He said, "It's an incredible journey that has exceeded all expectations. Great people out there at the micro level in the United States who really give a shit." All right. Awesome. Um it's it's so cool the outpouring that they've gotten on that trip, uh, outpouring of support. It really is. It yeah. really is. And I'm looking forward to sitting down with him when he returns yeah. to Virginia to hear all of his stories from the road because there must be incredible things that he's experienced and funny things that he's experienced that don't make it on the daily Facebook yeah. post. Looking forward to hearing all about that. Yeah. Uh well, if you haven't had a chance to check out the long road, check it out. Uh, again, Sergeants Major LeHue and uh, Kinzer are out there walking across Highway 20, the longest road in America, um, from Massachusetts to Oregon. Right, and their purpose, just to refresh your memories, is to raise awareness and ultimately funds for History Flight, which uh, is a, a nonprofit recovery organization. They they locate and recover remains of missing servicemen. All right. So check them out on Facebook if you want to throw your their support your way, uh, your support their way, you know what I'm trying to say. And uh, for those of you listening in that are members, you are getting access to the latest edition of Leatherneck right now, September. Don't be confused by the fact it's mid-August. Uh, September is arriving in your mailboxes soon. If you haven't gotten it already, it'll be online digitally next week. Um Nancy, does anything stand out from the September edition to you? Yes. Well, first of all, I just want to point out our cover photo is a photo of the late Herschel Woody Williams, Medal of Honor recipient from World War II. He passed away while we were in production with the magazine, um, but we were able to to kind of change things up a little bit so that we could feature him on the cover. He had a remarkable post-Marine Corps lifetime of service to veterans and uh so check out that cover and we've got a, an expanded obituary in the magazine that that really goes into some of the details about how he dedicated his life to taking care of veterans really a remarkable guy that's the that's the first thing i want to point out and um we've got as always we have a, a lot of really good articles and i think that the two most interesting articles have to do with, um, well, we're sharing an article with Gazette this month. We don't do that very often, but this was written by uh, 2nd Lieutenant Kyle Daly, and he's one of the Leatherneck freelancers, and he took on a really interesting topic, which is Dissent Done Right, How Military Leaders and Doctrine Encourage Criticism. So basically he talks about the appropriate and correct way to to criticize decisions that are being made you guys talked about this a little with gazette we talked a little bit yeah. about it last week yes um yeah it's obviously it's a it's a daily production or kyle daily production so it's very well written it is it is the article uh, the article explains that members of the military including junior enlisted and young officers are allowed to openly disagree with their superiors and express criticism, but it must be done in an appropriate manner. And so Kyle kind of outlines what that means. What is an appropriate manner? And uh, I think it's, as always, really well researched and well written. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it does also kind of help shine a light on what we do here at the association with the Gazette, which is a place where people can get that kind of thing published. Absolutely. And then um, you said uh, you had a couple that were standing out to you. <laughs> right, right. Uh, the other article that I thought was, you know, kind of a standout piece this month is uh, written by Sarah Bach. And the title of the article is There's a Place for You in the American Legion. And this is about the newest generation of legionnaires. 
and uh, uh, the, the American Legion has taken some great efforts to attract a younger demographic of veterans. And so there are several, Sarah talked with several Marines who have been integral in that role. And in fact, we're hoping to get a couple of those people on Scuttlebutt. So stay tuned we're, for those guests in the near future. All right. Yeah, and there's a lot more good stuff in there as usual. There's, you know, a half a dozen great feature articles, and then there's, you know, the normal sound offs and sea stories and the saved round, and it's all in there, and it's all in there. It's a great read. Um, so you can catch that uh, in your inbox if you're a member. If you're not a member, you can read two articles each month. This month it's going to be The Descent Done Right, and the, uh, there's a place for you in the American Legion that we just talked about. And uh, if you'd like to just pick up a single uh, issue, you can pick it up in our app at MCA, the MCA app. You can find that on the App Store and on the Google Play Store. All right. Uh, Anything you want to throw on the fire here before we throw back over to Vic? No, nothing I can think of. I just, uh, we'd love to hear from you and hear what your thoughts are on the magazine and on Scuttlebutt. All right. Thank you very much. All right, Vic, take it away with William and Mike Hunsaker. Hello, honey. Yeah. Give me the number for Michael Hunsaker. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Um, I'm here with William. Howdy. And for our third time guest, reoccurring guest, Dr. Michael Hunsaker. Hey, how's it going, man? How's it going? I'm very proud to soon be the Tom Hanks of the Scuttlebutt podcast series. So it's an honor. <laughs> well, to dude, as can. Yeah, I mean, anytime we need, you know, a bump. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, like SNL and Tom Hanks. Like, hey, this thing's really taking a nosedive. Let's get Tom Hanks back on. Or it's kind of like a, from the Simpsons movie. Uh, Scuttlebutt lost some credibility, so I'm here to bring it back. Yeah, that's right. The first but and I, last time in my life I will be compared to Tom Hanks, but I will take it. Yeah. Well, um, actually, because you are such a staple of the show now, and uh, the trajectory of the world seems to really want that hell in a handbasket thing to be, um, you know, a literal rather than figurative uh, analogy. We're probably going to have you on a few times more. Um, so we're just going to start a segment. We're sort of uh, spitballing the naming convention right now, but I think straight talk is the one that's leading the pack. The other one was uh, give it to me straight. And... Um, the other thing about it, that, and this is what you're really going to love, is you're going to get your own audio free intro thing. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You just have to wait till it airs next week. But, dude, it's going to be amazing. I, I, I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath, and I mean that dude. in all seriousness. I'm an academic. I have nothing else to do with my time. But wait Well, dude, now it. you're a published author. You're a college professor. And now you have your own audio intro to a podcast segment. Dude, like you've made it. I, I can't go any I can't go to the H E B down here down the street without just people flocking me. It's I mean who uh, thought when you tipped burden. over my platoon that this is where we would be twenty five years later or whatever. <laughs> Older and more sober, but still more or less just bullshitting amongst ourselves. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it is just a it's just a perpetual Dutch oven. So speaking of that, <laughs> let's get into it, man. So um well, first off, thanks again for coming back on. Um, the audio clip would have really been awful if you weren't here <laughs> to follow it up. So uh, thanks for making that worthwhile. No, it's good. It's good to be on. You know, I, we're going to be talking about Taiwan and the Pelosi trip, and it's something that's just been stewing in my head. And so this is, I think, a great opportunity to come and talk, get some of these ideas out of my head, bounce some ideas off some smart people who have also been watching and listening and know a thing or two about the things we're talking about. So I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, dude, this is, and so, yeah, so, um, yeah, I remember when the Pelosi thing went down, it, it just, I guess, for context for our listeners, uh, Nancy Pelosi was the first Speaker of the House ever or in 25 years? Uh, since to... Newt Gingrich, I think in like 1997, he, yeah. The, the first one in a very long time and in the lifetime of most of the Marines who might be listening to this podcast. <laughs> right. Um, so she, uh, against uh, many, many uh, criticisms, both here domestically and abroad, um, went and visited with Taiwan. 
Um, and obviously there's blowback and we'll get into some of that, but that's sort of the context where this uh, conversation sort of the impetus behind it. And I just had sent um, Mike an email like, hey, check it out. And then he sent me back. It wasn't like a, a you know, he wasn't on a soapbox or anything, but it was as most things very well thought out and, and highly opinionated. So I'm like, well, dude, let's get this on. Let's get a microphone in front of you. Cause this is actually really good stuff, especially as we're coming into gosh, uh, the seventh month of the Ukraine war. And, um, you know, the, and we're seeing, uh, anyways, there's many, many inroads that we can take. And you actually, have last time you were on did we talk about your war on the rocks article where you talked about ukraine and how it juxtaposes with taiwan no so i think our last conversation was after my previous war on the rocks article where i was blasting the thai administration for sort of dragging its feet on some wildly overdue asymmetric reforms which you know just a quick preview i'm not sure we are in a much better place even you know nine ten months after that conversation and even in the wake of ukraine which was supposed to be this, you know, wild wake-up call that just galvanized everybody to the nature of the threat. Um, so, yeah, I, I have opinions. They're still somewhat pointed. I hope I'm wrong. I'd rather be wrong than right in this case, but I think it's an important argument to get out there on the table because, uh, believe me, although it's difficult for me to really read the pulse of the room in Washington, D.C., sitting here in San Antonio, Texas, but it really feels like the anti-China bandwagon is leaving the station, and for rightful reason, but I think it's leading us to a lot of sloppy thinking and this is not a competition that we, we didn't pull off 2003 particularly well, but this is definitely not a potential conflict that we can win just with some shitty rhetoric and some crappy symbols and some wishful thinking. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, I think it was like two or three episodes ago we had talked about sort of some of the, the, the tectonic shifts in deterrence and how um, back in the early aughts, a conventional war was a very viable deterrent because it took a lot out of your war chest. It took a lot to achieve victory, um, even if you had a very clear sort of end state. Um, it was it, it gave you a long lead between deterrence and a nuclear response. And then obviously the people that we were picking fights with didn't have really a viable intercontinental nuclear. Now. I, I feel like the the shift, the paradigm is now uh, a conventional warfare will end very quickly because you can so easily nuke each other right into oblivion. Yeah, I know. The, 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 the trope that's out there right now is future wars will be short. God, we've never heard that one before. Just like Ukraine war, I mean, really short, only seven months long at this point with absolutely no end in sight. So, yeah, uh, I think what's really painful as a academics sitting on the sidelines watching things, but having been a Marine is, you, you and I both know in the early 2000s, I had literally never heard the word deterrence uttered while in the Marine Corps on active duty from the years 2000 to 2006, two included deployment to Okinawa and two deployments to Iraq. I don't hear the term for the first time until I get to graduate school. I don't take a class. I had a political science undergrad degree from Berkeley in the 90s, spent six years in the Marine Corps. And the first time I ever read anything substantive about deterrence theory wasn't until 2008 in graduate school, and it was a book from the late 1960s. And so what really <laughs> troubles me is, you know, new things are just old things happening to new people. And so it's like we are rediscovering the same things over and over again. And so my hope is that we can do this fairly quickly. But it it's a problem that whether you're talking about academic scholars who study these issues or even people in uniform, I mean, we don't have anyone on active duty today who has really seriously wrestled with what it means to deter a capable, proximate, nuclear-armed adversary who's under the rank of maybe a three or a four-star. And so these are just, these are rusty ideas, these are rusty concepts. Add in a lot of kind of the political, the inflammatory issues that just make it easy to gloss over difficult challenges. And I think we find ourselves in the position we're in today. Uh, so yeah, I, I worry. We have not thought enough about deterrence. I've been all of my students hate me because we spend weeks talking about deterrence. We break it down Barney style to use another reference that nobody under the age of 40 will get anymore. And we start with the basics. Uh, but, you know, I think there are also other challenges out there, which is this idea that, you know, this war will be short. Just I'm not convinced of that. And I've actually been I spent the last like two, two and a half years working on a project, interviewing people in Japan, China, Australia, Korea, Taiwan, the United States, really trying to, to, to probe how they think this sort of a conflict could, could unfold. And I, I think there's a lot of fear out there 
that what we are looking at is unlikely to be a short conflict. And so I think that's got to be a part of the discussion, too. How receptive well, I guess the, been, the, sorry, sorry, but how receptive have they been to when you when you probe them on on that on that discussion to the fact they may be longer than a shorter war? Is it varying or is it how would you feel? So I think what's interesting about the trajectory, I mean, so I was supposed to finish this project in like a year. We got the grant in 2020. And uh, thankfully, because I'm an academic, I procrastinate, taking a long time. And so it just sort of stretched itself out. And then every six or so months, there's a new crisis that affects cross-strait relations. And so I get another excuse to stretch this out into another round of interviews. So what's been interesting, though, wasn't part of the original research plan, is by kind of coming back around over and over again, talking to experts and former government officials and academics in each of these countries, is you kind of get to see the evolution of their views. And so I will tell you, when I started doing this project, then we would ask very provocative questions about what if the war isn't short? What about the risk of nuclear escalation? Two, two and a half years ago, you know, we kind of get the, yeah, that's that's just silly, you know, it's a question that an academic can ask is you guys can just mentally masturbate over whatever you want to, but us, you know, hard-nosed practitioners, we got to deal with the real problems. I will tell you in the last 12 or so months, though, suddenly when you talk to people about stalemate scenarios or nuclear escalation scenarios, they take those questions a lot more seriously. And you kind of see the lights go on and you see them really, you get the sense they've been wrestling with this and it's something that concerns them a lot as well. And so when very serious people who have a lot of skin in the game are now worrying about the same things that I as an academic could pontificate about, but really it was probably not not plausible. Uh, when I see them worrying about these things, it, you know, it makes me nervous. So I was going to uh, want to follow up on um, your comments, though, about the duration of uh, a, a conflict. So I, I, I would, um, I guess I'm not challenging, but I just if you could elaborate a little more, because my thought is, that a short conflict, a short conventional conflict, actually would be, would be bad for all parties involved because when you're dealing with autocrats and authoritarian regimes, if they see their own demise occurring quickly, they're gonna go straight to the most extreme response. Whereas if you have a long lead on a conventional war, you could sort of find a place of where it's an amiable departure from conflict and everybody gets to hold on to at least a little slice of power and authority. They're not completely routed out. But if we're looking at, I mean, if we had, if we were able to do what these pontificators say, and that is take China in 19 days like we did in Iraq, dude, by day 11, they're sending nukes our way. Like there's no way they go quietly into the night. No, so so here's here's the thing. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think what concerns me is that so many of the people, I don't want to say who are agitating for war, but I think there are voices in Washington who uh, aren't interested in defending Taiwan for its own sake. And, and let me be clear. I am a skeptic because I think we need to think hard and ask ourselves the tough questions. Like I like to tell my students, uh, we can and should lie to the enemy, but we should not lie to ourselves. And I worry that we're kind of inverting that process and we're transparently open kimono to China and meanwhile, just diluting ourselves into the, just the real strategic and operational challenges that we face. One of those delusions, I think, again, you know, the irony is not lost on me that the same people who designed the awesome, we won it very quickly, Iraq war are now in the leading vanguard of those saying how we can compete against China via the proxy of Taiwan. But the point is, there's a powerful narrative that this war will be short and sharp, and so we got to be ready to show up the first disc with the most disc. I do agree we got to be able to show up the first disc with the most disc. That's going to be a problem because we're 7,000 miles away and China's 90 miles away. So we're probably, unless we develop a Tesseract machine, not going to pull that off. But <laughs> this idea that if, if, we just, if we just have the right alchemy of weapons and capabilities, that really China's a paper tiger. You know, we got to deal with it. We got to confront it. But once we do, and we do so with resoluteness, it, it will fold. I wholeheartedly agree with you. We're dealing with an autocrat that this autocrat, if he, whatever he is, I don't know anything about Xi Jinping, never met the man, probably never will, uh, is if he decides to roll the dice on war, he knows at that point it's his existence, certainly the existence of his, re his regime, probably his own personal existence, and it could be even higher stakes for the country itself. And so if he rolls those dice, uh, I think he's willing to pay any price, bear any burden. And so I wholeheartedly agree nuclear escalation is on the table. I also, though, think that if he were to send the hordes across the Taiwan Strait to grab Taiwan, and even if we successfully block him, 
So the Wall Street Journal, a bunch of other outlets have been talking about this CSIS simulation. <laughs> we run the simulations one time, we're like, we could defend Taiwan. And we're like, okay, well, let's go home. Let's call it a day. Uh, I don't <laughs> think that convinces anyone. I've run a lot of simulations and, and trust me, you can bake out the, the outcome that you want. Uh, but the point is, stopping China from taking Taiwan, I think will lead us to roughly the same point that the French found themselves in 1914 when they stopped the German hordes from taking Paris. Which is to say that was not the end of the goddamn war. It's not like Germans, ah, shit, we lost. Let's just pack it up and go back home. Like at that point, their credibility, we think our credibility is on the line once Pelosi says she was going to visit, she has to visit. Like once Xi Jinping undertakes a massive invasion for the credibility of his regime at home, for the credibility of his regime in the region, for the credibility of his regime writ large for his own survival, he's not going to stop. So my guess is what we likely see is some sort of a conflict scenario where I, my understanding, I'm not a PLA expert, but I read those who do understand the PLA probably doesn't have the schlitz right now to take Taiwan. But if he were to roll the dice, if we were to find ourselves in that situation, fails to take Taiwan, we, I think we find ourselves in a stalemate where we have lost a lot. I've never seen a simulation or been in a simulation where we don't like lose an aircraft carrier or two. And we say it so glibly as though we've ever experienced what losing five or 10,000 sailors in a 24 or 48 hour period would be like. I just cannot imagine the shock to the American psyche. I think we respond with haymakers. But the point is, I don't want to respond with haymakers. I want to deter them on the front end by convincing them they're going to get the haymakers. I don't think we've done that. And so I think what we have is this shock phase where both sides realize what they've just gotten themselves into. And the only point at which I would disagree with you is I don't think a long war makes it easier to strike a deal. Because like I can tell my students, everything we think we know about why wars start has to do with wars tend to start in situations where deals are very hard to reach, hence the Clausewitzian politics by other means. So you strike your deal over the pie by use of force. Uh, that underlying set of problems about issue divisibility, about commitment problems, about incomplete information about the other side's capability and resolve, those don't go away, except maybe the information about the other side's capability and resolve. You'll probably figure that out pretty quickly. Everything else, though, remains. And in fact, I think once all three sides, the United States, China, and our allies in the region to include Taiwan, I think once we've all had a bloody nose, I don't think our war aims go down. History of war suggests our war aims go up. And one of the questions I've been asking people in the region is, so if we have a conflict over Taiwan, and let's say there's an operational pause because China failed to achieve its, its initial objectives, uh, is there a world in which we could see ourselves negotiating over a return to the pre-war status quo? Like, would the Taiwanese people, having absorbed tens or hundreds of thousands of casualties, be willing to go back to this bizarro quasi-state? Would the American people? Would the Japanese? And I think we know the answer is going to be no. At that point, then, the bar just got raised. But China also, by the same token, just lost lives. It's not going to be willing to accept something short of what it already started the conflict with. Well, then, but also, too, that, that, that drive at the political level. Meanwhile, at the military level, I see us all regrouping frantically as we try to reconstitute our forces, and then we go back at it again. Well, then you, you create an environment where you have two armistices, armistices, armistice, surrounding China, right? I mean, because technically the Korean War is still on. Yeah, well, assuming, yeah, assuming you can strike an armistice, my, my guess is, again, all of this predicated on Xi rolling the dice for war. I, skeptical and cynical as I sound, I'm skeptical and cynical because I place a lot of hope in deterrence. But I don't think deterrence works on the cheap. I think there's no price we shouldn't pay to enhance deterrence because deterrence turns on our ability to convince China that we will bear any price, pay any, pay any price, bear any burden to fight this conflict. So we got a lot of investment to do to get to that point that I think deterrence will be on strong foundations. But I believe it's possible we just can't lie to ourselves and delude ourselves. Uh, so I am hopeful that we can maintain deterrence in the first place. But I think if deterrence breaks down and the conflict then happens, I don't think there's an armistice after the Taiwan phase. I think there's an operational pause. I think there's a regrouping where we stare at each other over the parapet that is the Taiwan Strait. And that's then when we get into the scenario you're talking about, where both sides start to wonder, do we escalate vertically by going to the nuclear level? Do we escalate horizontally by now looking for soft underbellies in the alliance structure or the, you know, the region where we can poke them and they can poke us? Or do we regroup and refit because we fired off all of our long-range anti-ship missiles and all of our javelins and everything else, and then we regroup and we kind of plink at each other for a few months or a few years, sort of like the Sitzkrieg that we saw in 1940, until we're in a position where we think now we can, we can plunge in. Um, well, as we as we look at deterrence, then, and um, you know your um, <clears throat> your zeal towards it as a better of the shitty alternatives, 
um, if we look, if we use the model of the first great power competition between us and the Soviets, one of the benefits, I think, and, and I've done nothing more than just open my mouth and let ideas come tumbling out like a turd. So don't you hold me, me both. You <laughs> me both. <laughs> um, but thinking back to one of the things that helped, that really assisted with deterrence beyond just mutually assured destruction was the fact that there were a ton of geographic locations that weren't close to either of our borders where we can conduct these sort of proxy wars. <laughs> Was we talk about and we use Taiwan as a as a simulated proxy war. It's way too close, right? There's no buffer zone in deterrence uh, as it sits right now, unless we were to like start hooking and jabbing in Horn of Africa, or unless we were to do something in Korea. And even that's probably too close. Anyways, all that is to say. Uh, you know, the the battle, the proxy battlegrounds of Latin America, of the global south, mm. don't really exist right now. And so how is Force Design 2030 the only real way that we can execute deterrence or, or effective deterrence? No, you, I mean, even if you are just making it up as you go along, you raise, I think, a very important point, which is we, we, we have to find, and this is something my project is starting to converge on, uh, we have to find some sort of a, an outlet so that both sides can go back to their domestic audiences and make no mistake, she might be an authoritarian, but even authoritarians have to answer to somebody at the end of the day. We've got to be able to go back and say, we're making progress on this big competition against the evil other, especially because increasingly it's obvious we're, we're casting each other in sort of irreconcilable, mutually exclusive terms. We cannot both coexist, but we must and we will. And so we've got to be able to do stuff hook and jab and poke each other in the eye, and it can be quite bloody. I'm making making it sound glib, but it, it clearly wouldn't be as we saw in all of the proxy wars that unfolded in the Cold War. So we've got to be able to find a way to do that. Uh, the the so-called gray zone, which there's been a lot of hand-wringing in Washington about, oh, my, you know, we, they, they're going to get an advantage over us in the gray zone. I actually think the history of the Cold War points out we're pretty damn good in the gray zone, too. You know, I actually am okay with some of the salami tactics we've been using by sending increasingly high-ranking visitors over to Taiwan. I think that's actually smart and savvy. And, you know, come full circle, we can bring up Pelosi. I just think that Pelosi was like an overreach, and it wasn't a coordinated one. I think that was a case of an elected representative from one district going to score an easy layup domestically to score some points uh, that was not well synchronized with an overarching strategy to say, let's encroach into the gray zone so we can hook and jab and show the Taiwanese people and our allies were serious and, and show China, and then China can do stuff back to us. And that's good. We should fight in the sandbox. But you are totally right. I, Taiwan is a very bad place to wage a great power proxy conflict because it is, for one side, not a proxy conflict. And I think coming back to this, we shouldn't lie to ourselves. We should not delude ourselves into thinking uh, that the other side sees it as a proxy issue. To them, it is core and existential to us. And this gets back to the asymmetry of resolve. We really got to do a better job of signaling you know, why this is so existentially important to us as well, because if it looks like for us, it's a proxy for them, it's existential, that could lead them to miscalculate. Because the worst world we could be in is where they think we're not gonna fight and we are. And, and mm -hmm. my, my gut tells me we would. I, we just gotta close that gap to be able to show them. And you know, if you, if you read a lot of the stuff coming out about why we need to defend Taiwan, and again, I, I'm on the camp, I've been in Taiwan, I train Taiwanese Marines, I go back almost every year, I, I believe Taiwan is worth defending. But a lot of the stuff you hear coming out of the people who say we should defend, it sounds like a grab bag of ideas. You know, they, they've got semiconductors and they're our ninth largest trading partner worth $90 billion a year. Like this is not the kind of thing you want to go to the American people and say, this is worth 100 or 150,000 American lives for $90 billion. It's a rounding error on our, our national GDP. So I think there are more compelling arguments we need to make. And we got to start selling them to the American people now because the Chinese leadership senses a disconnect between the elite. Because don't think for a moment they're not going to try to paint this as a Josh Bolton war part, whatever. Uh, and what the American people want. And here, I think we're a little more nuanced. We're a bit cynical and jaded about what American power can achieve. Again, then deterrence is going to be on fragile foundations. Well, I think that there's definitely, uh, at least from you know my uh, vantage point, there's a lot to be said for that cultural shift. As if you look at, I mean, it seems like China in the past five years, I mean, just based on their uh, international um, movie sales, uh, and I mean, 
I think in 2001, the battle for Lake Shenzhen was the second highest grossing uh, movie, second to Spider-Man. Um, and it didn't even release here in the States. And so uh, I think they're starting to take a playbook, a play page out of our Cold War playbook. And that is, hey, let's solidify our domestic fervor. Let's get like this hyper-masculine action movie. America is evil. We're always awesome. Um, you know, plot be damned. <laughs> Character development is shit. I just need a tough guy to kill Americans with a huge production value and everyone's going to come flocking to it. And this is how we're going to whip up the fervor and start planting those seeds so that when this does go down, we have domestic support. I mean, does that does that make sense? I mean, is, are you seeing that as well? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yes, it 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 makes total sense. It is. I do not believe authoritarians actually have huge advantages over democracies. And there's a rich body of literature in IR studies that actually suggests democracies are much better at waging war. We just, you know, are sometimes uh, less astute about avoiding them and things. But but democracies have all sorts of advantages. But definitely an advantage that an authoritarian state has, especially one in today's social media driven world, is that it, it has a lot of ability to kind of use propaganda to whip up domestic fervor. Also, though, I mean, I don't think we can discount the fact that this century of humiliation is real. And we are, uh, I, I don't necessarily think American decline is pre preordained. I think there is, as I show my students, there's like no decade since the Second World War in which we haven't basically been convinced that we're in imminent decline, except maybe the 60s and we were too high in the 60s. And so in every other single decade, you know, we were like, oh my God, it's, it's the Soviets are going to eat our lunch. The Japanese are going to eat our lunch. The Chinese, we're always convinced. I am not convinced it is preordained, but we definitely have a lot of domestic issues that we, we need to work through as a nation. And we don't necessarily have this kind of simple, crude narrative that we can point to saying that it's it's our time and we have been humiliated in the past and it's our time to shine. I think China is going to be able to leverage that to a degree that we cannot. And so that is going to give them an inherent advantage, plus the fact that Taiwan to them is a near dear Whereas to many Americans, I don't want to be glib, but I would challenge some of them to find Taiwan on a map. And oftentimes I say I study Taiwan and they're like, I love Thai food, too. So, you know, we've got to be able to. <laughs> that Thai is amazing. Yeah, we, we, we got to be able to educate. We've got to be able to socialize. We've got to be able to get people to understand why Taiwan is important, uh, the logic behind why it's worth sacrificing for. But most importantly of all, to really remind everybody that the point is to deter the war, not to use it as an excuse to fight it. Because I do think there are some people who say, well, better to fight China now than later. And I think that's actually that's wrong. I think we're going to be in a better place in the 2030s. Uh, I worry about the next two to eight years. I think that's where we go through this uncanny valley. That's why the Pelosi visit agitated me. That plus the three cups of coffee I've had this morning. Can you extrapolate that a little more? Why you think yeah. the next two to eight years is more uh, fragile than uh, post-2030? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. So, you know, a couple of years ago or... God, time has lost all meaning since the pandemic. So then Indo-PACOM combatant commander Davidson gives this testimony to Congress saying, you know, this is the Davidson window in the next seven years. And I have to admit, I was initially skeptical because I'm an academic. I'm skeptical of everything. And I was like, oh, this is one of those traditional, quote unquote, rice bowl arguments where really just kind of a little bit of threat inflation in order to fight for a bigger piece of the budget pie for Indo-PACOM. And so I started doing some digging, talking to some folks. And I, I think my, my initial take was wrong. And so I really do, and I've heard other people accusing the Davidson claim of being just pulled out of thin air. I don't think that's right. And, and and maybe it was pulled out of thin air, I don't know. But I think that there is reason to be concerned over the next two to seven years, and there are a couple of factors here. The first is, right, so we all know Xi Jinping faces this big national Congress coming up in the fall where he's gonna go up for his unprecedented, except for Mao, third term. Um, and so that's kind of why I don't think any, my personal guess is nothing happens in the near, near term. You've got a lot of things to deal with anyway. Another reason I wasn't happy about the Pelosi visit is sort of you're like depancing Xi Jinping right before his big, I'm doing something unprecedented, and you're like, yoink. And so he had to respond. It's like, why would we beg the response that puts more pressure on him to do something? He's got enough to deal with right now. Let's just keep with our steady drumbeat of salami tactics. But again, I'm, I digress. Uh, so I don't think anything happens in the near term. But he gets the third term. If he's like most people, right, this is why the founders created a constitution that pit power-hungry asshole against power-hungry asshole. That's the genius of our system, whereas authoritarian regimes is just power-hungry assholes unfettered, and the communist safeguards against that have fallen apart, which is why 
he might go up for a fourth term. I think the third term, he probably get away with not having Taiwan solved. At the fourth term, though, right, the pressure is probably going to be increased. Well, we gave you all this power, and we're stumbling along economically, and we know they face all sorts of demographic shortfalls. Uh, oh, and you made Taiwan this big pivotal centerpiece of your justification for the third terms. So where's the beef? Uh, another reference that nobody under the age of 50 is going to get. I got I to really update my pop culture. So I think you, that's- you, you still have the T-shirt? You still have your where's the beef T-shirt? <laughs> I do. I, see, I, I'm old enough to remember when Wendy's was shit. Now it's like, I don't know if it's any good. I haven't been there in a few decades, but apparently she's very snarky on Twitter, which makes her cool. Um, so, so I think that's one factor is next five years comes back up for, and so there's going to be pressure on the regime to do something tangible. I think another factor though is just like we're like, oh, we're in decline or whatever, better deal with China now than later. That you know, I think China is going to face the same thing. I think when China looks across the Pacific, what they see is us having spent 20 years distracted in Iraq and Afghanistan realizing that's exactly what happened and pivoting, not in the in the Asia pivot term, but pivoting militarily, operationally, where we get things like multi-domain operations, JADT, JADC, JADC2, uh, Force Design 2030. Like there's a, a, a genuine realization that we are behind the eight ball and that we need to invest in these new capabilities, but also work hard at developing new doctrines and new war fighting concepts. The thing is, it takes time for those to come online. It looks like those things are going to really start coming online in the early 2030s, late 2020s. So if you're China, you're looking at like, well, America's getting its act together. Right now, it's not in a great place. Five, 10 years from now, though, it might be able to make good on its promises in a way that it cannot right now. So we're worried about our imminent decline, our need to show our resolve. We're thinking we're in decline. China's thinking the window might be closing, juxtaposed with the fact that Xi Jinping may face a great deal of pressure, assuming he survives into a fifth term. Meanwhile, Taiwan, I think, is still being too complacent about the threat. Another reason I wasn't happy about the Pelosi trip is it I think it generates moral hazard at a time where I want the Taiwanese to feel the heat. I want them to feel the heat so they invest, because this is not the Cold War. This is not a bipolar system. We do not have a predominance of power. We don't have 50 percent of the world's GDP. We cannot deal with China alone. We need our allies and partners, and we don't need them symbolically. We need them for reals. And so anything we can do to make the allies feel a little bit more heat so they put more actual work behind developing their capabilities as we develop our own while keeping our mouths shut until we have that big stick so we can speak a little bit louder. Like in my mind, that's what we should be doing. We got to find a way to navigate ourselves until we can emerge in the 2030s, I think, with a more robust foundation for deterrence and then begin working peacefully to negotiate some solution out of this untenable status quo. Yeah, I mean, there's this, uh, well, as you know, like we have this common, grossly overused um, axiom of, you know, uh, how we love to fight uh, the the last war. We're always pre- more prepared to fight the last war. I think for those who would suggest that the next two to seven years is our optimal win- window are just basing that off of the fact that we just fought the last war. Like, just because we have a bunch of guys who are experienced in fighting counterinsurgency does not mean that we're ready to fight a, a, a near-peer threat. No, it's, uh, yeah, so... so- Iraq and Afghanistan were tactical wars where obviously we suffered for want of an overarching doctrine. But then we actually saw, I mean, in terms of historic counterinsurgencies, we solved that problem pretty quick. We, yes, we fought the last war, but I, I, I feel like in Vietnam and Iraq, Afghanistan, we were a bit too harsh on the military, especially before Iraq and Afghanistan. The military was told we're getting out of the business of nation building. We're not doing it anymore. We, the military is beholden to political leadership. The political leadership said, we're not doing it, and then said, do it. And so unsurprisingly, and I get the military also didn't really want to do it. That's a bad combination to have, but more or less got its ducks in a row. And insurgencies are hard to defeat, I mean, by definition. And so it's not surprising. It, we struggle along with the challenge, and it really is a political challenge. Uh, but I actually think the military has done a fairly good job once extricated from those wars. I remember you and I were both around when Secretary Gates was like, stop suffering from next war itis. I mean, we were literally told, don't worry about great power competition. Uh, that's tomorrow's problem. Well, tomorrow's here, but I actually think the military has done a relatively impressive job. Of course, there are fits and starts, and there's a lot of dirty details on the inside of baseball and so many mixed metaphors today. Uh, but, but I think you know the military really. But it takes time to invest in these capabilities. Uh, that small unit leadership is going to be great, but this is going to be this is going to be a you know a grand, if it happens a grand clash of capabilities. And I also think there are larger challenges that the military alone can't solve. Our defense industrial base. Is in a real bad spot. And some of this is because we have neglected it. I mean, I remember it was a 2004 or five where we started running low on 5.56 ammunition because there was like one plant in the United States that produced the stuff. 
we're not really in a much better place. Um, what is it? I think I saw a quote where we in we have given a Ukraine and Ukraine has used seven years worth of javelin production. Yeah, yeah. Four months. Uh, I have heard we can produce at max capacity 2,000 javelins a year. I have heard, you know, we are what is a building something like a few hundred long range anti-ship missiles per year. And that CSI simulation they just ran, they, they used that in like 48 hours. A quote that I like to pull out of my own book in order to talk about just the challenge, how we're going we're gonna to get the munitions wrong no matter how hard we try. In the lead up to 1914, and I remember Europe was pretty sure war was happening. The British Expeditionary Force was serious about preparing. They did a lot of war gaming. They did a lot of simulating. They said, we need industry to be ready to give us 7 million rounds per week. The BEF's first order for rounds after they had been engaged in the fight in France in 1914 was for 176 million rounds. But the types of bullets we're going to need in a future war against China, they're not made of lead. It's not like Rosie the Riveter is going to all of a sudden opening, open a smelting factory in her backyard. And do we like, I don't know about you, I can barely change a tire in my car. So where exactly we're going to get all this human capital, not to mention the industrial pipelines in order to build long range rocket motors and precision technologies. Uh, but we're going to have to do it. We've got 114 surface combatants, of which, you know, what is it? It's like uh, the 20%, 25% are under 10 years old. China has like 140 surface combatants, 80% of which are under 10 years old. And so just the capability sets and our ability to reconstitute those forces quickly, I don't see it. And again, I think we've recognized the problem. It's going to take us years to change the problem. And that puts us in this problematic value where... If it's up to us, we should probably not try to pick that fight in the next two to seven years. Um, so, so uh, I guess as we're talking about concepts coming online, post-war game, post-experimentation, assuming that Force Design 2030 passes all of the, I mean, obviously it's congressionally approved, so it's going to Past. But I mean, let's just say from at least a military person's standpoint, like it, it is a very viable and applicable uh, policy it, for deterrence. What we're talking about now is, is that we're going to be mixing much in the same way you've mixed a bunch of metaphors in this interview <laughs> is we're going to be mixing concepts. So we're going to require um, the small unit leader that was so instrumental in fighting counterinsurgency but we're also going to need the big thinker that can look at things strategically because our forces are going to be so dispersed over such a lot. I mean, if you just look at a single Marine um, littoral regiment, they're going to be covering like what three or four islands over hundreds of miles. So how, I don't know, what is your, some of your thoughts? Like what's reading the tea leaves for that where, I mean, that's a lot to invest in is a really smart general and a really smart corporal. I mean, and, and I think, you know, I, again, we, we got to stop agreeing. We got to find something we disagree about. I wholeheartedly agree. This isn't going to be cheap. And we have got to stop convincing ourselves that we can deter, let alone defeat, a proximate and capable adversary like China. And by proximate, I mean proximate to the thing we're trying to defend, Taiwan, not proximate to us. That's the problem. We're not going to do this on the cheap. Like, this is not going to be the type of conflict that if we really want to deter it, let alone prevail in it, that we can all go shopping. Like, there are going to be tremendous opportunity costs, dollars that will not be invested in things like education and social reform and healthcare. And, and you know, I, I tend to think those things are relatively important. I, I think we do run, I mean, everyone talks about Eisenhower and his defense military industrial complex, but I actually think the speech I like to show my students is the one where he talks about the real challenge of being a great power trying to build up this international order is you run the risk of basically nailing yourself to a cross of iron where you, and this is coming from an old school Republican saying there are roads that need to be built and schools that need to be invested in, but we're not gonna be able to do it because we gotta build up the military power to deal with the Soviet Union. Those are real hard trade-offs we're gonna make. And this is again, coming back to Pelosi, this, I, I, the cheap talk is not helpful. Like there's an honest conversation that needs to be had, and people are like, oh, we shouldn't have honest conversations in front of our adversaries. I'm like, bullshit. It's the point of a democracy. We can have those conversations because then if we convince the American people, like that sends a genuine signal of resolve. Like if we can tell the American people we are sacrificing A, B, and C for Taiwan, and the American people say, okay, we, we argue about it for a while, and we come, we come along, and we increase by, you know, by percentages of GDP on defense spending so that we can buy those astute generals. We can have entire services committed to to difficult and challenging concepts that, that might even fail, but we're willing to take those risks. But that sends a signal to Beijing. 
that I think is is undeniable. Letting the Speaker of the House do a flyby and swoop in and give a speech or two, I, that is the worst form of cheap talk. So, yeah, you, you've definitely been uh... – it feels like you're like about to like a like a shaken up soda bottle about to ex- explode about uh, Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. So I feel like we should just open the floodgates and, and just get like your, your full take on it. I just want to start with like for your average listener who like may not be in tune. Like, what was the purpose of the ship in the first place? How did we get there? And then uh, just go from there. Yeah, no, right. This was this was the it's false advertising. We're like he's going to talk about Pelosi and then he rants and raves about you know. Long-term defense, <laughs> industrial-based challenges, and the theory of concern. So, to come through full circle at the end of the conversation here. So, back in April, Pelosi announced that she was going to do a trip to Taiwan, and then she gets COVID and doesn't do the trip to Taiwan. I do think it is interesting. China didn't make a whole big fuss about that trip back in April. My my guess is that that has a lot to do with the timing of it all, because you know you fast forward. This is before all the COVID shutdowns really hit China hard. It created a lot of economic challenges for Xi. And again, it's not on the doorstep of his attempt to go up for the third. So timing matters. Fast forward into late July, early August, uh, Pelosi was going to do a regularly scheduled trip through Indopaycom and then announces, or office announces, she's planning on visiting Taiwan. Of course, now uproar ensues from China. It does put the United States in a difficult position. Of course, everybody who understands, you know, I'm a sad bill sitting on Capitol Hill, dating myself, uh, knows that the legislature and the executive branch aren't in the same branch of government, and it's not like the president can tell the speaker not to go. My guess is that nuance is lost on many Chinese analysts, definitely all Chinese citizens, and probably even inside the upper echelons of power. Or if they know the difference, they don't really care. Difference without a distinction. From their perspective, this is like the highest ranking person from the United States going to Taiwan in a very provocative time uh, as a symbol. And again, I'm not even opposed to that in itself. Well, look at that. So, so that uproar ensues. Then President Biden is doing a press conference on the eve of this supposed trip, which it's been suggested Pelosi might go to Taiwan, but it's not been confirmed. And in essence says, like, I have been advised by Indo-PACOM, this, this isn't a great time. Um, and that's another reason I think at that point, maybe we should have, you know, we would have lost a little bit of, of something, something, whatever, credibility, just a tiny bit, and found a, found a reason for Pelosi to get a cold this time and, and not go to Taiwan or for her plane. To there, are, there are ways to, to walk ourselves out of that. Uh, but that doesn't happen. So Pelosi ends up going on this trip. Even when she leaves on the trip, it isn't necessarily clear that she's going to stop in Taiwan. And then she stops in Taiwan. And China makes good on its promise. Uh, there's, a, I think, a very important op-ed written by Bonnie Glazer, the German Marshall Fund, and a, a good friend, Zach Cooper, over at American Enterprise Institute. And, and these are not you know, necessarily ideologically aligned folks, but both of them came out and have a very powerful op-ed saying, don't do it. Like This is just not the time. The response will be all out of proportion to what Taiwan gains from the visit. But the trip goes forward. China immediately follows up with a series of major naval exercises, uses aircraft to cross the so-called median line, dividing kind of that quote-unquote midpoint. It's not really a formal line of demarcation, but kind of by tradition, more or less, has stayed away on its side of the Taiwan Strait. But now it's flooding a bunch of aircraft over the median line. Its naval drills are coming so close to Taiwanese ports that Taiwan actually has to shut some down and divert traffic around, which, of course, has some economic costs. It leads people to now conclude that China's planning a blockade I think that's a bad read, but we can get into that if we have time. Uh, and it even goes so far as to launch missiles, not just in the Taiwan Strait, a la the 1995-1996 Taiwan Strait crisis, but it launches missiles into Japanese waters, not its 12-mile waters, but still its exclusive economic zone. I mean, talk about provocative signaling. I think most ominously, though, although the exercises have ended, China has made clear it will continue to do these types of exercises. This will be the new norm which creates all sorts of problems because it's kind of that steady drumbeat of exercises, increases the risk of some sort of an accident that is difficult for us to control. It also has the risk of a couple of years from now lulling us into a false sense of complacency. And much like Russia's SNAP exercises, it could be used either as a pretext for an invasion or as an opportunity to move logistics and troops around in a way that makes it harder for us to detect things in the future. So that's the setup. Uh, here, here, Here's a quick rundown of reasons. I think it's it's a bad idea. Uh, and, you know, I've had conversations with others who think it was a good idea or, you know, are neutral on it. And I just I, I remain I respect their opinions and I'm remaining convinced. So, first of all, again, I think you're, you're yoinking the pants down on Xi Jinping right before he goes up for a third term. I don't have any problems with depancing Xi Jinping. It's just if we're going to depance Xi Jinping, let's be ready to follow it up with something bigger. But this was an uncoordinated trip. Uh, is it unnecessary depancing? Yeah, there are necessary depancings. There are useful depancings. I mean, we all enjoyed them and I'm not getting them, but seeing them. I do it. 
but then it would be like me depancing the captain of the football team, not yet ready for exactly what the captain is going to do to me, which was push me in the locker. Uh, it doesn't increase our military capability. Like we, we are talking a good game. We've got the right concepts, but we have a lot of gaps. We've got the, we've got all those defense industrial gaps. We got gaps in medical readiness. Like every war game I've seen, we lose an aircraft carrier too. Does anybody think that we have the medical wherewithal to evacuate 5,000 or 10,000 horrifically burned sailors from an active combat zone to get them back home and Walter Reed and Brook Army Medical Center are going to be able to handle? We, we have no technology or readiness. And I haven't done my wife and brother, both military doctors, spoken to no one who really tells me, maybe it's a top secret. But again, the logic of deterrence is to tell, you don't keep that secret. You tell the other side, man, give me 100,000 casualties. I'm going to patch them up and get them back on the battlefield. That's what you want to be able to tell the other side. Not like, oh, we have a secret plan for dealing with that. Well, we don't. Uh, so for all these reasons, man, get the military capabilities in place. Let's distribute our forces across the Pacific. Let's harden our bases. Let's make sure our allies are incentivized to really be ready for this. Which comes to the third point, is it engenders moral hazard among the Taiwanese, not people, but government. I think the Tsai administration really wanted to be able to go. Remember, Taiwan has a local election coming up. And those have historically not gone well for the party in power. So the Tsai administration, just like any administration in any democracy, wants to score points to get votes. These are tenuous times. The KMT is going to try to get votes against the DPP by saying, look, you have antagonized cross-strait relations. Well, what better than to show the will and support of the American people? And the Taiwanese love symbols. And so Nancy Pelosi going, hey, thumbs up. We're doing everything to bring America in. But what it also does is many Taiwanese are like, well, we're a rounding error. And so why should we undertake all of these expensive, painful reforms to get ready to fight when everybody knows when the fight happens, it's really going to be this clash of titans. We just hunker down. And I actually don't think that's true. I think Taiwan has a meaningful role to play in its own defense, one that we need, especially as we get our act together. So Taiwan can hold the door open and hold out long enough for us to project force into the region. But Pelosi going increases the narrative of, why should we extend conscription from four months to something more meaningful? You know, why should we invest a lot more money? Why should we double our spending currently at 2% of their GDP to something like what America spends, which is 4% of GDP? Another reason is it makes Biden look weak. I mean, I, I know Biden may not be the most popular president at the moment, but one thing he has done repeatedly is said he's going to defend Taiwan. And so like the one thing you don't want to do is now make it look like you're not even in control of your own party. Nancy Pelosi is a senior member of Biden's party. And so although the nuance of Speaker of the House and the president may be lost on many Chinese observers, I'm guessing they didn't miss the fact that both of them are Democrats. And Biden literally comes out basically in public and as strongly as a president ever would to a Speaker of the House said, don't do it, does it anyway. And so she depances both Xi Jinping and President Biden at the same time. And worst of all is I don't think a whole hell of a lot of military or political strategy thinking went into this. I think this looked like an easy layup in the run-up to our midterm elections to make it look like Democrats are tough on China because being tough on China is a thing that scores points. And no thought went into all these other pieces of it. And so those who wanted to rah-rah, they can rah-rah around it. But we just, we poked the dragon that much more. We put that much more pressure at, at a time. that I don't know that we're ready to kind of keep pace in this race to kind of build up capability. Well, what would you say, I guess, just playing devil's advocate, is there any value to, I'm almost like a uh, recon by fire on this thing is, hey, let's rattle the cage and see what spits out. Because we know that a new normal is coming down the pike at some point. Maybe if we shake the bird's nest and make it shit itself all over the place, then we can see where we need to put down more newspaper. <laughs> so I, you bring a good point up, which is, the new normal is coming down. I've talked to other folks who say China is looking to draw new red lines and continually box Taiwan in. I actually am less worried about this because at the end of the day, in my mind, to annex Taiwan means controlling the population, controlling the population, unless that population is so irresolute that it just, you know, its will is broken by something like it's going to take invading the island. So in my mind, you can paint all the red lines you want. You can encircle it diplomatically all you want. Actually, that galvanizes the Taiwanese people and increases Taiwanese investment in other economic zones in relationship with the United States. All good things for us. All good things to reduce Taiwanese dependence on China. And in the long run, I think all things that actually make it easier. Uh, but right, I think China was going to do these things anyway. But the point is, recon by fire makes sense when it's part of a plan to recon by fire. Again, I think this is ready, fire, aim. And mm. so this was not sending out a platoon with a company and a battalion in reserve ready like a movement to contact to kind of go and envelop the enemy. I don't think this was coordinated. If it were coordinated, then I'm pretty sure the president wouldn't have basically asked the speaker not to go in a very public forum. And so there had been some conversation. It would look like it was part of a master plan. Uh, but again, it, 
instead of looking like a master plan made us look I, all things equal it probably would have been best if the president just said no what's done is done she's going to go let me not say in a public forum not to do it let's at least make this look like it's part of a plan uh yeah what um as we were talking about culture uh you know and, and levels of skin in the game uh you and i have talked um about some articles one that uh sort of put a microscope on their Taiwanese culture and their very kind of laissez-faire attitude towards China. Like, Hey, just more saber rattling, you know, which is something that very was very reminiscent of the Ukrainians prior to uh, the Russian invasion. And then the interesting blowback um, from the Chinese war hawks uh, and internet trolls who were pretty upset that there's a lot of stronger language used about the Pelosi trip and that it's, which essentially amounted to nothing other than some more uh, you know military maneuvers. Um, so can you sort of talk that juxtaposition um, uh, and what that means to, for deterrence and what role we have to play there? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. I so it will probably get lost here. I saw. Let me start with Taiwan. I, I fundamentally believe that beneath the, the veneer of complacency, there is, there is the ability for the Taiwanese people to demonstrate the level of resolution that I think it helps enhance deterrence. I am under no illusions that Taiwan could defeat a Chinese invasion or even long-term Chinese encirclement on its own. I think like we're America tomorrow to say, you know what, you're on your own. I, I, it's game over. And I wouldn't expect the Taiwanese. The Taiwanese population is the size of Shanghai. Like, there's just there's no winning that one 90 miles away. Uh, that said, for lots of understandable reasons, there is this veneer of complacency that we have to get under, and that's going to be costly and it's politically difficult. And I get why Taiwanese politicians aren't eager to do that to challenge their own people and their own you know political leaders tend to follow. That's the nature of democracy. Uh, but. China's been saber rattling for decades and nothing has ever happened. And so it's very easy to engender this sense of complacency. Military service is deeply associated in Taiwan with authoritarianism in their own right and in very painful sorts of ways, in ways that are very understandable. And so it's not necessarily a shock that uh, even the most ardent supporters of, of even independence, but let alone maintaining the status quo and preparing Taiwan for inevitability, you know, runs into the challenge of trying to convince young men and women to join the military, which young men and women either see as a waste of their time which conscription largely was even when it was longer, but also the fact that, it, you know, these were tools of oppression for the Taiwanese people really up until like the late 1980s. So, you know, this is not a distant memory for many Taiwanese. And so for all of these reasons, and then you have the moral hazard of the United States and this kind of expectation that, well, as long as we buy your pricey weapons, because there are no illusions, we sold them a lot of crappy shit. It was better than China had back in the 70s and 80s. It was still crappy shit. And they knew they were paying too much for it. They were paying a, a mint for a jalopy, but mixed metaphor. But they were doing it because it, it came across like a protection racket. They'd buy our stuff, and even though we wouldn't say it, it meant we would come to back them up. And so I think you know we got to work through all of these issues and help Taiwan work through all these issues. That's why Admiral Lee Min and I wrote this piece about territorial defense to say, listen, if a lot of Taiwanese aren't willing to volunteer for the military or increase conscription, there's this third alternative, which is to create this kind of pseudo militia and to really train and equip them uh, again to, to show what Taiwan is capable of. Flipping over, though, to the other side of the Taiwan Strait, I, my guess is, I have not been to China since 2008, I'm probably not gonna make any trips in the near term, but my guess is that there's a larger percentage of the population that does take seriously potential conflict scenarios, uh, the century of humiliation, just again, Taiwan is a proxy for a challenge against the United States, but also the sense of national unity, the fact that who is the West to kind of stick there. I mean, remember how we acted when people would interfere in Cuba? And so I think, and Cuba was never an American state, although we debated that, you know, prior to the Civil War. And that's one of the, the trigger points that leads us to the Civil War. You know, Taiwan is, is far more part and parcel of China to many Chinese in a way that I think Americans have a hard time understanding. But I would also agree, there are a lot of people in China who would prefer not to fight a war, right? There's this Confucius saying, if you don't use good men for soldiers, just like you don't use good iron for men. You know, a lot of people probably do not want their sons and daughters to be given up for a fight over Taiwan. They don't want them to be given up for the military. I don't know that China has a militaristic, even in the sense of the American uh, system of, of, of military service as being this honorable, prestigious, desirable thing to do. But there's also a lot of business interest. I think business people in China know that if there's a war over Taiwan, like that's a hard stop to U.S.-Chinese trade. And it's a, I mean, that's a economic cliff for everybody. Uh, but Taiwan, America, democracies, China's an authoritarian system. I don't know if Xi Jinping 
has a plan or wants to go to war, it's in Xi Jinping's head, but he gets to call the shot. And that's a problem because then these other voices who in democracies might restrain the march to war, you know, somewhat more random on the Chinese side. To this point, though, you raise about the hawks coming out in the wake of the exercise saying, you know, what? That was that was all you were going to do. I, I guess I would just bring up this point. One interpretation is that, yes, China's authoritarian, but even an authoritarian system, they can't quell all voices of dissent. And so, you know, maybe we should see that Xi Jinping himself has to answer to this hawkish wing of his own country, and that might paint him in a corner. The other interpretation, I don't know which one's right. The other interpretation that I think we can't rule out is it's an authoritarian regime that actually has been pretty good at controlling the internet and controlling social media and controlling certain voices. And it is interesting that we hear voices that are more hawkish than the regime's response, but not voices that are less hawkish. And, and that could be an attempt then to more or less show the world, listen, this was the minimum response, but there are people calling for me to do something much more maximum, and I may not be able to restrain them and those voices much longer. So I, I, you know, I think it could be a much more propulsive tool of signaling. What's the likelihood that, since China's obviously very good information warfare, that that's just them? Uh, they are the more hawkish elements in some, you know, computer factory in uh, somewhere in, in China, and then just you just have people typing on all day. Yeah, I, I, I think a very plausible explanation is that is part of just an information campaign to to to, to both Wallace and a complacency. Oh well, you know, she wasn't as hawkish as the hawks, uh, but it also could be an attempt to to signal. Listen, there's there is worse to come, and there are people who are calling for it, and to remind us and the rest of the world that that those options remain on the table, sort of like launching missiles into Japanese waters, which is just, I mean, if that had happened five, 10 years ago, like our hair would, well, your hair would be on fire. My, I would just shave again, I guess. But it would be, uh, you know, but but it, it speaks to the degree to which tensions have ratcheted in that part of the world. And we're like, oh, yeah. and, and some missiles. And I remember in like the early 2000s, uh, North Korea fired a missile over Japan and Japan didn't notice until we told them. And that was major news. And here it's basically like a rounding error on an otherwise deeply provocative set of stories that some missiles splash into Japanese waters. So we, we have gotten to a very problematic point. But I think this is all part and parcel of a much larger signal and I think a new, a new normal. A new normal, that Vic, as you pointed out, that was probably coming anyway. Uh, but again, let's not speed up their timeline because that speeds up our own timeline. Let's, let's do what we can to convince them to be complacent while we husband our resources and develop our capabilities. I'd be much happier if we could do that and then a big reveal in the late 2020s. Hey, it's too late. Don't do it. Well, dude, thank you again uh, for your generosity. If you want, you can take this recording and then just press play on some of your classes and then you don't even have to show up. Thought already occurred. <laughs> well, dude, again, this is so great. I don't know, William, do you got anything else? Yeah, I mean, just I asked you this last time, but any additional resources you have for anyone interested in understanding how uh, uh, this conflict or how it's unfolding or looking forward, where to look at? So I would say, especially as people are looking at this quote unquote crisis unfolding in real time, and, and you know, I don't know whether we should label it the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis or not, it doesn't really matter in my mind. Those are things that historians label afterwards. But you know, it is also new and unfolding. I would say the best thing I can suggest, since obviously no one's written a book on this yet, are you know smart and sharp people who they should follow. So CSIS has the China Power website, podcast, everything else associated, uh, run by uh, Bonnie Lin, again, over at CSIS. I think that is definitely worth following. They do some great interviews. They do some great surveys, have a lot of great details and resources. Uh, Bonnie Glazer over the German Marshall Fund is definitely somebody to be following on Twitter and in social media. Zach Cooper, an American Enterprise Institute, is somebody worth following, listening to. Uh, Oriana Mastro, who's over at Stanford, is, uh, I think, a great expert, somebody who has, I did my PhD with her, so I'm a little biased, but, you know, has really been studying the PLA very, very closely for a long time. And then Adam Liff, who is at Indiana University, but I think has a very deep understanding, not just of China, but also Japan. Actually, he's, he's living in Japan right now. And so I think he's He's on social media a bit less than others, but he's been very prolific at writing a lot of uh, academic journals. And I think he's got a lot of nuance into some of the things he's saying and bringing back some of these historical arguments and points that many of us have otherwise glossed over as we're fixated on the here and now. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that's great, man. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, brother. So again, thanks for coming on. Um, 
I don't think we're going to be able to put a bow on this thing anytime soon. So we're going to have you on again for another engaging installment of straight talk or give it to me straight or whatever we're going to call it. Uh, but we definitely have to have more of them to make use of that audio. That we're going to have the intro. <laughs> It, well, I hope the audio includes some some completely anachronistic '90s video clip. But it's my pleasure, and I gotta be honest. I hope I'm totally wrong. I hope if I'm ever invited again, it's a podcast where you're like, "Well, actually, there's a bow on it. You were totally wrong. Everything is fine now." Please tell me, Hunziker, why were you so 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 skeptical? <laughs> yeah, I would love that after action. Actually, that would be that would be fantastic. Uh, but yeah, in my uh, you know two decades plus now of knowing you that that's yet to happen so i'm not you don't have a really great track record for sucking at these things that's right like when colonel abbott took command of third tracks and but right before 9 11 and told us every unit i've ever commanded has gone to war and we're like bullshit we don't go to war anymore and yeah like who is this guy <laughs> proved us wrong so I, there's a track record i was definitely wrong on that one yeah well all right man um Take care. Uh, you're back at uh, George Mason in person this upcoming fall, or no? I'm I'm teaching online in the fall, which is why this podcast is so wonderful. I'm like, that's that's a lecture. <laughs> that's right. Well, hey, dude, you're getting college credit. All right. Um, well, uh, again, next time you're out here, let's get that beer that we keep talking about getting. And uh, again, we'll have you on soon. And thanks, man. Have a great weekend. Appreciate the opportunity. I look forward to seeing you guys again. All right, and for all the listeners, have a great weekend as well. Thank you so much. Hello, honey. Yeah. Give me the number for Michael Hunsaker. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. You have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Motherneck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scottlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.